we uh, we're going on this journey. And I wanted to first put up a fact that is indisputable. Frodo is a brave hobbit. He, on his journey to take the ring to Mount Doom, experiences many triumphs. But he also faces many internal battles. He struggles with shame and fear. A lot of shame about failing parts of his quest, failing the fellowship, failing the shire. He faces fears, right? Fears of the dark lord, of course. Fears of the influence of the ring. He fears the uncertainty of this perilous and dangerous journey. And at one of his lowest moments, he confesses, I wish these would not happen in my time. So Gandalf replies to him, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we get to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. We struggle with shame and fear. So Gandalf has a wise word for you today. And so we go on our own journey through the book of Romans. So we're going to flash forward to chapter 10 where Paul has a word for us too about salvation. And I hope that it is a better word than Gandalf's. So if you're taking notes, we're going to organize this message in three parts. One is seeking salvation. Two is getting salvation. And three is living salvation. In first century Jewish culture, the concept of salvation was based on the Mosaic law. Know the law. Live by the law. Be found righteous on account of the law. Then you will be saved. Paul in this chapter is going to flip that concept upside down. So we read in Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And before we continue, I just wanted to give my own confession. The message for today will be basically focused on verse 9. Verse 8 leads up to it. It's introducing to you that the word is near your heart and your mouth. That it is not based on the law. Verse 10 is a repetition. It's a supporting verse of the idea in verse 9, right? That your confession is what justifies you. That your heart is what saves you. So as we go on, let me pray for us. And we'll get to our message. Lord, we just want to thank you for 
your word. We want to thank you for who you are and what you've done for your salvation and resurrection that gives us a new life. Lord, Spirit, come and enlighten our minds, expand our hearts. So we don't only want to know more, but we want to be changed. We want to be transformed. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. O God, our rock and our redeemer. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Everyone seeks salvation. We may not all use this word, but the idea is the same. Whether you are religious or not, we all want to be saved Maybe it has happened at some point in your life, and if it hasn't, it will. If you're religious, this is true, you know, from the very beginning of human existence, right? When Adam and Eve took from the fruit and ate it, and they disobeyed God, instead of rising above their station, which was what they wanted to do, they wanted to be more like God, Instead, what happens? They fall into a state of shame and fear. Our human condition is mired in this brokenness, right? In this emotion of shame and fear. And so what do we do when we first discover that fear? We cover it up, right? That's what Adam and Eve do. They found themselves naked, so they cover themselves up. The next thing that happens is that they hear God walking in the garden and they hide. Why? Because they're afraid. Emotions that they have never felt before, now they're the two first emotions that they feel after they fall. This is our condition. Whether you're Christian or not, we try to make ourselves more adequate by ridding ourselves of that shame And that fear, sometimes we avoid talking about it, right? Sometimes we overcome it by taking more control of our own lives, about where we are. In our own ways, we try to lift ourselves up and save ourselves from what we are. Philosophers, existential philosophers like Sartre and Heidegger would say that shame exists in the gap of our ideal self-image and where our actual lives are. We all have goals and ideals, right? And when we fail, that gap is where shame starts to sprout. How many of us have had addictions that we could just not kick? Whether it's something like sugar or alcohol or drugs, or sex, or maybe there are routines that you've been wanting to adopt in your life but haven't been able to. Maybe it's getting up earlier, or exercising, or doing quiet times, or being kinder to others. You've been trying, but you've failed, and those failings create a bit of shame. You hope no one asks you that day whether you went to the gym, or whether you had that donut. Fear, then, 
is the uncertainty of achieving that goal. Will I finally be able to do this? Will I finally kick this habit? I am afraid I will never live the life I want to. So what do we do? We try to save ourselves from that state. If you're not convinced that we all seek salvation, at least you have to agree with me that things are not as they should be, that our lives are not as they should be. Climate is not as it should be. If you were here a month ago, it wasn't normal to smell barbecue and seeing orange skies for days at a time. Not as it should be. Politics isn't as it should be. Each side shaming the other side, creating fear amongst their own to galvanize us into action, getting our attention, our votes, our money, because they will put things as they should be. Politics isn't as they should be. Work isn't as it should be. Your salary isn't high enough. Your projects aren't interesting enough. And don't let me get started on your coworkers. The world is not as it should be, but we also know that we are not as we ought to be either. As we age, even though we all look fabulous and feel young and look very young, our bodies start to need more and more maintenance. The prayers for healing become more and more frequent. We start seeing our friends dealing with loss. Then we start dealing with our own loss. Our lives are not as they should be. In one way or another, we want salvation from where we are. Some ways, first century Jews faced the same situation. They knew that the state of the world, their lives, was not as they should be. They understood this full and well for centuries. And they have believed and they were taught that the only way out was to follow the law. For generations before them, ingrained in them was this one way to find salvation, and it's to know the law, live by the law, and be saved by the law. And Paul writes, that's not how you get saved. For people of the law, getting this salvation, living by the law was tricky, right? There were the big laws and there were the small laws that they had to follow. It encompassed every aspect of their lives, what they could eat, how to marry, when to divorce, what to wear, how to wash, and even things that were legal, social, how to care for the poor, personal conduct, legal matters, political matters, all encompassed this mosaic law. It was not easy. And worse, your salvation and Often the deliverance of your people depended on how faithful you were in living by that law. So all you have to understand, every day, the measure stick 
of their lives would be, am I following this law? 1,500 years of living by this set of cultural, legal, religious standards. At least 15 generations from Moses to Jesus. In contrast, our culture, our country, only 250 years old. This idea of the law was ingrained in their DNA. And so Paul comes here and says, the law, <laughs> salvation is obtained through your mouth and through your heart, through confession and belief. No longer do you have to bother with sacrifices and rituals and following the ceremonial laws that were part of your culture, national identity for generations. Imagine all that history gone. He does away with that. In earlier chapter 10, verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In verse 6, it says, But the righteousness based on faith says, and I'm going to paraphrase here, says, all you got to do is confess and believe. Confess and believe. What exactly? Well, first, Paul says you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word Lord is used to replace the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Paul, in other words, is saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. The Yahweh whose laws you were following for 1,500 years, the name that was so sacred you couldn't even utter. Well, Jesus is Yahweh. He is your Lord. And he's not Lord only over your spiritual and religious experiences, but just as the laws encompassed every aspect of your life, what you could eat, how to dress, your relationship, your money, your work, your identity, Jesus is Lord over all of it. James Taylor, the famous missionary, is quoted as saying, Jesus is either Lord of it all or none of it all. There are two areas in my life that I have the hardest time to say Jesus is Lord. Relationship and money. So hard. I have a fear in not knowing what's going to happen. And I have a shame that some things have not happened yet. And so what do I do? I take control. Jesus, I don't think you know what you're doing here. You're not Lord of this. <laughs> you don't know what it's like to date in the 21st century. So I do what I need to do to find fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction in those areas. But maybe he's reminding me today that he is also Lord over that area. 
Is Jesus Lord over all aspects of your life? Maybe you have unseated him in some areas. Paul says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but he also writes that you must believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, that he has been resurrected. Do you know what the practical implication of the resurrection is? If you've seen the pamphlets from the Jehovah's Witnesses, they show pictures of paradise, right? Lush, green pastures, people skipping happily, you know, sporting white, green, and toothy smiles. Animals frolicking around. You got a lion and a sheep sharing a watermelon. That is one depiction of the life to come, sure. But the practical implication of Jesus' resurrection is that because he has conquered death, he has conquered everything else. His resurrection touches upon every aspect of our lives. During his life, he has shown us his power over many things, over illness, healed countless of people, over hunger, fed thousands of people. He made the blind see. He cast out demons. And he showed us that he had power over unruly waters. But when Jesus rises from the dead, he proclaims that there is no limitation to his salvation. And because Jesus is Lord over everything, when he rises from the dead, he says he has power over everything. His salvation touches every aspect of your life. There's nothing that his salvation does not cover. There's nothing that his salvation will not redeem. So what does that do? It saves you from a feeling of shame and fear. It releases you from the anxieties and stresses of not being able to control the uncertainties of your relationship of your money. It releases you from the shame and fear of not having achieved certain goals you had in life, of not being able to kick those addictions yet. It releases you from the anxieties of not knowing how your children are going to grow up, where they're going to go to school. It releases you from the anxieties of not having built the family you've wanted yet. His salvation covers all of that. In fact, it covers the state of our politics, the state of our worsening environment. His salvation touches upon all of that, and he promises us a real, a good outcome. 
for all of us. For all of us who believe. Paul says there's nothing you have to do. No laws to follow. No animals to sacrifice. No ritual washings. No moral acts. No generous givings to get this salvation. All you have to do is acknowledge the life Jesus lived. The death he died. The resurrection. So you have this life free from shame. Free from fear, free from having to control your own destiny, yet have a life that is full, that is free, and that is filled with hope. If you're not Christian, this could be good news to you. Maybe it is somewhat of an answer what you're looking for, whether it is purpose that you are looking for, fulfillment, satisfaction. Maybe you do it through different goals in life, social justice, environmental justice. Maybe you want to be true to yourself and be your authentic self and live the life you want. Jesus is saying, I am Lord over all of those things. I will be the one that brings true racial, social Economic justice. I'm the one that's going to give you your true identity. I'm the one that's going to restore this planet. I planted a beautiful garden, and it will become a flourishing, vibrant city. Romans 8 gives you a glimpse of that, right? As creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay. The creation itself will be restored, will be free. If you're seeking physical salvation, in the same chapter, he says that we are waiting with creation for the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be restored. He says, I give you an identity that won't change and won't fail. I will be your God and you will be my child. And you can see glimpses of this as Jesus lived. He lived a life of justice. He healed Jews and Gentiles alike. He empowered women. He welcomed children. He taught powerful people, not powerful people. He cared for the state of the poor, and he cared for, for the hearts of the rich. Does Jesus live a life that we want to live and promises us a future we want to have? And the way to that is not anything but belief. That's good news. If you're Christian, then living salvation means living the way you get salvation by confessing and believing. You continue to confess that Jesus is Lord over every aspect of your life and his risen body has power over all things. And you know what that leads to? It leads to a life of worship. Living your salvation means living a way of worship. Because why? Confession is the outward act What's happening internally? Confession is an outward act of your heart belief. Worship 
is a lifestyle of what your faith is. Is every aspect of your life aligned with the belief that Jesus is Lord over all, but also has power over all things? Maybe, if you're like me, oftentimes in your life you feel, yeah, he has power over everything, but not my finances, not my relationships, not my friendships, not the environment. You know the difference between being environmentally conscious from a position of living salvation? Is that one is driven out of good stewardship and hope knowing that the world will be restored one day, that even though things are not as they should be, you in faithful hope are ushering the true reality to come. The other one is inspired by fear. You know what conflict resolution looks like if you're living salvation? It is marked by forgiveness and reconciliation because you know that one day there will be true social harmony. When friendships break down, relationships break down, you have that hope, you have that persistence. If you don't have that smart but spite, right? You see, living salvation means that I'm less tight-fisted about my finances, that I'm more trusting, that I'm less envious, that I'm able then to become more loving, more serving, more volunteering. And not everything is an opportunity to build my own portfolio, my own status, my own life. It gives me an urgency to usher the kingdom to come, the reality that is promised to us. Living salvation means you have nothing to be ashamed of and you have nothing to fear. Last week, the parable, parable went to a billion dollars, right? Now, let's say you had the winning ticket. How would your life change? The money has not been deposited yet. Right? But your demeanor will be different. Maybe when you go to work tomorrow, work won't be as stressful anymore. It won't be as demanding. Maybe that week you start feeling a bit more generous with your friends and your neighbors. Maybe you start thinking about volunteering more or the charities that you're going to start founding. All of this, of course, after your long trip to Europe or Hawaii or Asia. Come on. I'm not saying you have a winning lottery ticket. I'm saying you have something more valuable in your hand. You will be emotionally healed. You will be mentally healed. You will be physically healed. 
you will find a kind of flourishing you can't imagine. The kind of flourishing a billion dollars can't give you. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying. No pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Salvation will be total and complete. There will be a restoration of the earth. Revelation depicts us as the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God, from the heavens, dressed beautifully as the bride awaiting her husband. Holy city amongst us, restoring the earth. This is what salvation is. Living salvation means not waiting for that day, but living towards that day. Living to usher that day to come. So maybe it starts with living with less shame and fear today, with less stress and anxiety. Maybe it starts by living more with thanksgiving and hope and assurance of what's to come. And this is only possible, Paul says, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and he has been risen. Before that, though, I think you must believe in something else. Will you believe with me that the Lord of the universe saw us in our fear and shame, in our nakedness, in our futile attempts to find salvation for ourselves, in our attempts to rise out, out of our station and failing over and over again? Will you believe with me that this Lord, this Jesus, comes down and takes on our humanity, our nakedness, our frailty, in all our brokenness, and he lives a life that we could not live, and thus perfectly fulfilling all the demands of the law. And as he does that, he takes our shame. He takes our nakedness. And as he hangs upon that cross, he suffers the most shameful death, the most vulnerable agony by the very same people he came to save. All this for us. And he dies for us so that we could live this life in full and inherit the life to come for eternity. So Jesus, he takes away our shame. He takes away our fears. His resurrection promises us that day is coming and we can start living it today. Will you believe that with me? 
Will you confess that? Will you worship him with me? Towards the end of the journey, Frodo faces another crucial moment. He's very close to the end. But once again, he's faced with deep despair, discouragement, fear, shame, and he wants to give up. So Samwise Gamgee, his loyal friend, says to him, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something that there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. When you feel shame or fear, hopelessness or dread, the promise is that a new day is coming. Darkness will pass because salvation is here. And living salvation means believing that. So you fight for the good that is already here, and you fight for the goodness that is to come. Let's pray. Will you rise with me if you're able? And I just want to remind everyone that if you need prayer for anything, for any of the things that Pastor Denise said, there's the prayer team in the back to my right and to your left. They will be more than welcome and love to pray with you and for you. So I invite you to, to go and pray with them. As we continue, just know that and re be reminded that Jesus is Lord over all, has power over every aspect of your life, and he is inviting you to live a life that is free from shame and fear, and that is one that is urgently and hopefully ushering the day to come, the new day. And you will be able to do that with much hope and joy. So let's pray. Let's say, God, will you remind me, reignite my salvation, my hope of that new day to come.